Let's begin with a short quiz. You guys ready for a quiz? In order to participate in this quiz, you need to consider how many years that you have gone to church. So, um, just any church of any kind, how long have you gone to church? All right, so let's start by everyone raising your hand. Now, lower your hand if you've been going to church for less than one year. Okay, lower your hand if you've been going to church less than five years. Lower your hand if you've been going to church less than 10 years. Okay, less than 20 years. Okay, some kids are putting their hands down. You've been going to church less than 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. If you've been going to church less than 60 years, less than 70 years, less than 80 years, less than 90 years. Okay, now we got everybody. All right, now raise your hand back up if you have heard a pastor preach a sermon from the book of Numbers. Okay, a couple. Good. And I, I think the, that most of us have not heard. I, I don't remember hearing a specific sermon from Numbers itself. And so if we haven't, if we've been in church for decades, a lot of us, and we haven't heard a a sermon from the book of Numbers, why hear one now? And very simply, uh, the answer to that is because it's part of Scripture, right? All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for us, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the book of Numbers is not an easy book to read in one setting. It has an unappealing title, right? Who wants to read a book about numbers? Um, and then it begins with a census. And so we got all these names and immediately we're turned off. Why does this really matter to me? And then it moves to instructions on how to set up the camp, where all the tribes are supposed to be located. And then it talks about some temple regulation. And then there's some exciting parts, some interesting stories. And then we get to this peculiar story about a false prophet in chapter 22. And then it finishes with another census and more regulations. And so what are we supposed to make of this book? I like what Augustine said. He was talking about the whole Bible, but, but I think it fits for numbers as well. He says, It is shallow enough for a child to paddle in and yet deep enough to drown an elephant. Sure, we can look at stories in here and, and paddle through some of the basic truths about God and sin and ourselves. And maybe we've heard some of these stories in Sunday school and other places. But I think we'll do well to do more than just paddle on the surface, but actually dive down deep and consider this book for the next 23 Sunday mornings that, that we're together. The story of the book of Numbers is a story of Israel wandering in the wilderness. So it takes us from uh, Exodus to Deuteronomy. And we'll talk about what are in those books. And it's a story about Israel wandering around in a, a trip that should have taken a couple of weeks, took 40 years. And as Dr. Ola said once, it was not because the men were too proud to stop and ask for directions. The book begins in chapter 1, verse 2. Let me show you that. Here the Lord is speaking to Moses and He says, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. So they take a census and then turn back to chapter 26. So that, that first one there in chapter 1 is the census of the first generation. 
And then chapter 26, verse 2, the Lord tells to Moses, take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel from 20 years old and upward. So this time it's a completely different generation. So we start out with one generation, we get a census of them, and then another generation. And both times we come up with about 600,000 military men. But between these two chapters, chapters 1 and 26, we have a whole generation that has passed away except for three people, Moses and Joshua and Caleb. And Moses is going to die in the book of Deuteronomy. So the first generation had perished, and now this new generation is coming on the scene. So what happened? Why did they pass away? What, what was going on during this 40 years? Why did, they not get, why did this first generation not get into the promised land? And that's what we're going to consider this morning as we look at an overview of the book. Moses wrote this book. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. Numbers is the fourth volume of Moses' five-volume set. First, Genesis, which is a story of Israel's beginnings. Then Exodus, which is a story about Israel being in Egypt and then being uh, delivered from Egypt by the hand of God through Moses. And then the, the rest of Exodus about, is about God giving His law to Moses and the people. Leviticus and Numbers are, are next. And Leviticus records what God expects when people come to Him. That is, how they can have a relationship there with Him, how, how He demands perfect holiness and things done exactly His way. And then Numbers records the wilderness wanderings, and that leads us to Deuteronomy, which is the final sermon of Moses' life, where he preaches in apparently a 24-hour setting. He preaches this long sermon to Israel before they cross the Promised Land and before he dies. So that's the author, uh, Moses. Next, the recipient and the dates. The recipients, obviously the people of Israel, the, the direct recipients. This was supposed to be a historical record that, that they could constantly look back to and remember God's law and His expectations and what happened when they failed God. The date of this was the, the date of the events that happened in Numbers begin about a month after the Exodus and then about a year after um, uh, a month after the end of the book of Exodus and a year after the actual Exodus when they crossed the Red Sea. So it's one year later. They're in the wilderness. They're about to spend the next 40 years just wandering around. And so this is... Um, the Exodus took place in 1446 B.C. So the events in this book take place between 1445 and 1406. And the background, as you know, is that God has delivered Israel from Egypt. God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and that's where this book begins. They are at Mount Sinai. They're at the base. They've already received the law. And now it's time to set up camp and, and move. Follow God's leading there. And so Israel is, is wrapping up their stay here at Mount Sinai. That's what chapters 1 through 10 are about. And that's going to take place over the course of seven weeks, the, the uh, chapters 1 through 10. There are two primary uh, ideas in Numbers, two primary themes, we could say. The first is Israel's rebellion, we see very clearly, and secondly, God's faithfulness. And so from this book we learn that God is faithful to His people and He's looking for people who will be faithful to Him. God is faithful to His people and He's looking for people who will be faithful to Him. This first generation struggles with 
disobedience and distrust and disloyalty, idolatry, conflict with pagan nations, all here in the book of Numbers. And ultimately, they don't trust God to take them into the promised land. We'll see that here in just a minute. And as a result, God doesn't give up His promise to Israel. He doesn't destroy them. Now, He he doesn't destroy them completely. He does destroy that generation. He says, listen, if you're not going to obey Me, if you're going to distrust Me, then you're not going to receive the, the promised land. And so instead, He raises up a new generation who is willing to trust Him. And that's what this generation is marked by, Joshua's generation. Uh, a group of people who are willing to trust God, take Him at His word. So let's look at the structure of the text so that we can see how this theme that God is faithful and He's looking for people to be faithful to Him, how we can see this theme play out. In the first part of the text we see, uh, in chapters 1-10, through 10, we'll do it God's way. So, this first generation that is recorded here in chapter 1, the census that is taken, they uh, are ready to follow God. They are there at Sinai. God is preparing them to travel in the wilderness with Him leading them. And, and keep in the mind that these people have seen a lot. This, these are the people who just not a year ago were in Egypt. right? And, and they were under the tyranny of the Pharaoh there. And God had delivered them in a spectacular way, probably the most spectacular miracle in the Old Testament, the Exodus, particularly the the parting of the Red Sea. They had seen this. They had also seen God meet with them on Mount Sinai. They had seen God be faithful to them and merciful even though they sinned against Him with the golden calf. And, And there they entered into a covenant with God. And so there's much hope in this first generation. And so the beginning of the book is about counting the people, chapters 1-4. through four. The first thing that God tells them to do is to count the people. He says, take a census and do it only of the men who are 20 years and older. So if you turn back to chapter 1, we'll look at the, what the result of that is. Chapter 1, verse 45. So all the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's household from 20 years old and upward, upward Whoever was able to go out to war in Israel, even all the numbered men, were 603,550. So you have 600,000 people, 600,000 fighting men. People are capable to go and fight for Israel. And, and that seems like a lot, but consider how vulnerable they were. Right? What is it that they brought with them out of Egypt? Do you remember? The spoils, Right? They, all the, they just asked the people that they were near and said, hey, listen, can we take your stuff? And they said, just take it, just go. We don't want you here. And so they, they actually crossed the Red Sea with all these great spoils and treasures. And if any enemy got wind that Israel, puny Israel, right, not able to, not, not really gifted in, in being able to fight, that was not their, they were herdsmen by trade. And so they were very vulnerable to attack. So 600,000 might sound like a lot, but, but actually in terms of, humanly speaking, they were, they were in, a, in a difficult position. They start out really well. They want to serve God. It looks like that's the case. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. So Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name and they assembled all the congregation together on the first of the second month Then they registered by ancestry in their families, by their father's household, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, head by head, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So he numbered them. So here we have Moses 
obeying God, doing what he has asked, asked, and the result is that we have 600,000 fighting men. So that probably means that in total there's 2 million or more people that, that, are, that are in the wilderness, camping around the, the, temp, the tabernacle of God. And then in verses 47 through 54, the Levites are given their special role. We'll talk more about them next week when we look at chapters 3 and 4. The Levites were not engaged in battle. Instead, they had a responsibility to maintain congregational worship and care for the tabernacle. And then in chapter 2, there's the arrangement of the tribes around the tabernacle that the people of God were to organize. The people of God were to organize. Let's see if I can get this next one to work. Can you advance that next one for me? Thank you. They were to organize themselves around the tabernacle. So first you had the, the priests in the, the nearest circle, those kind of smaller blocks around that smoke that's in the center. Those are the priests, uh, the Levites that were camped there. And then each of the 12 tribes are split up into three sections. So on the east you had uh, Judah and, and then um, I, I don't have all the, the names of where they're at right now. I think we're going to look at it a little bit more next week. But the structure of this was supposed to remind Israel that God was at the center of them. That, the, that God was in their midst. That God was the one that was leading them. And then whenever God would get up and, and move shop, they were all to follow him. And the way that he would do that, obviously, was by the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire. And when that moved, they were to move with him. And, and it was a testament to the people that God was on their side, that he was among them, and that, that all of their activity was, was to be surrounded by God and to be sourced in God. Well, in chapters 6 through 10, um, we have um, the Israel meeting with God on his terms. All sorts of instructions here for this first generation of Israel Here's how you're going to meet with me. Because I live in your camp, there are certain rules that you must abide by. No one can just walk in rashly into the temple area, right? It has to be a Levite, and it has to be a priest if it's actually in the, temp- in the tabernacle itself. God is perfectly holy, and His people are not. And if the people were going to live in His presence, they needed to do it His way. And God says, if you do, I will promise you, or I do promise you, rich blessing. Turn to chapter 6 and look at verse 22. Here's this um, benediction that, that maybe you've heard or, 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 or know by heart, perhaps. Chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 22, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, Thus you, you shall bless the sons of Israel. This is what you shall say to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke by name on the sons of Israel and then I will bless them. Here's a promise of God's blessing. It's a reminder that God is with them. And the following chapters here further describe the tabernacle and the Passover and, and, guide the pe- and, and how the people were supposed to be guided in their travels. In chapter 9, verse 15, they're given instructions as to how they are to follow God. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. Chapter 9, verse 16. So it was, continually, it, it was continuously, the cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward, the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. 
So here they have God in their midst and then God leading them through the wilderness. And so this is an exciting and hopeful time. And at the end of chapter 10, we see them setting out for Sinai. After all this instruction and expectation and hope, and the next place for us really is going to be the promised land. Look at the end of chapter 10, verse 35. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. And, and so here is what Moses would say when the camp would go out and when the camp would come in. And, and this all looks great. The people are obedient. They're expectant. They're hopeful. God is there. God is guiding them. But then, in chapters 11 through 15, their tune changes really quickly. It turns to, we'll do it our own way, in chapters 11 through 25. We'll do it our own way. And so what we have recorded for us in these chapters is some travel time in chapters 11 and 12 and then in chapters 20 and 21. And then a lot of problems, a lot of, of disdain for God's leading. And these people begin complaining immediately in chapter 11. It reminds us of Exodus where they had just been delivered from the hand of Pharaoh and his, his military men were killed in the Red Sea. And not three days later, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 3, they are complaining about whether or not they're going to get food and, and water. And God says, do you, did you forget what just happened? Did you forget what great deliverance? Do you think I've abandoned you now? You need to trust in me. And so this travel begins from Sinai to the wilderness of Paran, which is where Kadesh Barnea is. And I think I've got a map there that may may not be, yeah, it's kind of hard to see, but, but they start down here at the at Mount Sinai and they, they make their way up. They make their way up the coast, the Gulf of Arabah, up to the wilderness of Paran, the wilderness of Zin, uh, Kadesh Barnea, and then they, they kind of camp out there and are kind of traveling all around there for, for several years. And so chapters 13 through 19 take place in the wilderness of Paran or Kadesh Barnea area. And chapter 13 gives us a story of the most important event of this generation. So turn there to chapter 13. Chapter 13. Because here's a, a description of this faithless generation. And, and uh, an illustration of this faithless generation. Here is where God sends Moses, or has Moses send 12 spies into the promised land and from the south. Now this would be the best way to attack the land of promise. This would be the best way to go into the, the land of Canaan from the south. And so if they came back with a good report, all of them, and they convinced the people that it was good for them to go, this is where they would have entered. God says, send spies in the land, see how things are, and bring, ha have them bring back a report. And so they send 12 spies into the land. And here's what we read in verse 27 of their report. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So they bring back some, some of the goods there. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land. 
in the land of the Negev, the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. That's not exactly the report that Moses was looking for. He was hoping they would say something more like this. Verse 30, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. These are the words of faith. God promised us the land. Here we are at the land. He's told us to go and spy out the land. Here's our report. God's going to give us the land. And there were some who who followed them, but, but most of them turned away and, and followed the ten spies in their report. Notice verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our, in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. These are the words of unbelief. They sized up their inhabitants. They sized up themselves. And through their human reasoning, their logic, they came to the conclusion that they could not possess this land. And they had forgotten that their possession of the land did not depend on them. It did not depend on their strength or their military ability. I mean, had they not just seen what God had done for them to the Egyptians, where was their faith? Where was their confidence in God who dwelt among them? Well, it wasn't only the spies who lacked faith. Look at verse, or chapter 14, verse 1. Listen to the response of the people. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness! Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. But Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb make an appeal to the people based on the promises of God and on His power and might. In verse 7, they spoke to the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land if the Lord is pleased. Notice that phrase. With, if the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us. Verse 9, Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But the people are unconvinced. And in verse 10 it says, The congregation set, uh, said to stone them with stones. So it becomes clear that Israel's rebellion is real. They have considered their options and they have determined that God is not able to deliver them. God is not able to give them the land. Well, God was going to have none of it and so His wrath is kindled. Notice the second part of verse 10. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in Me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. 
What's God ready to do here? He's ready to be done with them. He's ready to blot them out and cast them off from being His people. This is a long way from where we started, right? The Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and give you peace. God's disdain for their rebellion comes because of their lack of faith. But notice there's still hope. Verse 18. Moses knows that the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and and transgression. Moses intercedes here in verses 13 to 19 and he appeals to God's power and glory and God responds to Moses' intercession in, in verses 20 through 23 and he says, I will not blot out Israel. Instead, I'm going, to, I'm going to allow this present generation to get what they want. They're not going to go back to Egypt, but they're also not going to get the promised land. And so they're going to die here in the wilderness. <clears throat> Their sin has consequences and they will experience those. But... God says, I will not go back on my promise. Notice verse 31. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. See, God is faithful to His promise. Even when we we bring about delay because of our faith, or lack of faith, I should say, Right? Sometimes God delays, but He still follows through on His promise. This generation is going to die, but the next generation will rise up and follow God. And they will enjoy the blessing that He promised. Sadly, for the other generation, they would not experience the blessing of the promised land. I like how one commentator states it. It says, God is sovereign and is faithful to His promise, but He will allow people to live their whole lives in rebellion if they choose to do so. God is faithful, but if someone wants to go on into their sin, God allows it. And that's what happens with this first generation. In chapter 16 through 19, we see defiance against the priesthood. Um, we have the rebellion of Korah, where the earth opens up and swallows, swallows several people. And then the laws of the priesthood in chapters 18 and 19. And then from the wilderness Paran to the wilderness of Moab in chapters 20 and 21. From Paran to Moab. And here's where that is. So they start out here in the, in the desert there and they head all the way here to the east side of the promised land. This is actually part of the promised land on the east side of the Dead Sea. But here's Moab over here and uh, Assyria. <coughs> And so chapters 20 and 21 record that travel from Paran to, to Moab, to the east of the Jordan River. And in these chapters, Moses disqualifies himself because he was told to speak to the rock, and instead he did what? He struck it. That's in chapter 20. And then you also have the plague that comes, and people have to look at the snake in order to be healed. That's in chapter 21. And then in chapters 22 through 25, we have God being faithful to His promise despite His people rebelling against Him down below. And that's this strange story of Balaam and Balak. The king of Moab, Balak, is threatened by Israel and their God. And so he hires a prophet, Balaam, to call down a curse on Israel. 
But each time Balaam tries to curse Israel, God reveals that Israel will be blessed. And so Balaam comes back and says, I cannot do what God has uh, not told me. He's told me to, bl- to give a blessing to Israel, so I can't curse them like you want me to. And additionally, God gives Balaam a vision of, of a future Israelite king. And amazingly, the people during this time that God is effectively saying, I'm going to bless my people during that very time that God is being faithful to His promise and promising future blessing, His people are down there in the camp defying Him and getting ready to commit immorality with the Moabites. And the whole time, God is on the hills protecting them and remaining faithful to His promises. And in chapter 5, the section ends with the death of the faithless generation. God sends the plague that wipes out the rest of the ones who are alive. And these are, again, these are the ones who are over 20 years old and who had followed after the ten spies with unbelief. Phinehas stops it with the act of faith. And all now that remain is the second generation, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. Moses is going to die, as I mentioned before he gets to the promised land because of striking the rock. So, they start out, we'll do it God's way, but then life happens and circumstances look kind of bleak and so they're saying, you know what, maybe we'll do it our way. And then this, third, this second generation comes along and we see at the end of the text, chapters 26 to 36, okay, let's do it God's way. This is the second generation who comes along and says, yes, we will obey you. We will trust in you. This final section begins with a census of the younger generation who would trust God. And it takes place on the doorstep of, of the promised land. So if you picture again the Jordan River, Moab over here, this is where they are. They're right there on the doorstep of the promised land. They're about to cross over the Jordan River and they're about to attack Jer- Jericho. That's the beginning of Joshua. So they're standing here on the doorstep and God is preparing this new faith-filled generation to enter the promised land. And so he first starts by taking a census or having them take a census in chapter 26. And then he reminds them in chapters 27 through 30 that he's going to meet with them and that they must meet with him on, on his terms. And then they have this battle against the Midianites in chapter 31. And then there's more preparation in chapters 32 to 36. Particularly these two and a half tribes that actually are going to live over there on the east of the Jordan. He says, make sure that you, two and a half tribes, you actually come over with us. You know, you, you already have your land. You can start establishing your houses since we're here right now. You know, you have all your pasture land. You know where you're going to be. But, but here's the thing. We are a group. We all belong together. You can't just leave us to go in battle. And so they promise, yes, we will go with you in battle. We, we will not stay back. And they do. They follow through on their promise. And that's um, seen in the first part of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 and following. So we have this generation that comes, sees the great works of God through the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. They, they receive the word from God at Mount Sinai. They enter into a covenant with God. And not long after God sets out, starts taking them through the wilderness, they're ready to die. They're ready to be done with this. They're not being provided for like they want to be. They cannot attack and win against these opponents. So we'll do it our own way. And God says, you know what? If that's what you want, you will receive 
the, the fruit of your desires. And he allows them to, to die in the wilderness and not receive the blessing. But the second generation comes along and says, all right, God is worthy to be trusted. And we are going to follow our leaders who are trusting God. A couple thoughts here as we close. Number one, beware of the sin of unbelief. If the nation of Israel, who had seen the greatest miracles in the Old Testament, if they, who had entered into a covenant with God, if they could walk away, if they were prone to wander away from God, if they were able to be judged for their sins, then surely we are also susceptible of turning away from God. So don't let the sin of unbelief take residence in your heart. We, we have to persevere until the end. We are not at heaven yet. And so we need to trust God. No matter how many steps in front of us we can see. You know, we want to see the end from the beginning. They couldn't see it. They could only see a couple steps in front of them. They had to trust God for the rest. God's saying, you've got to do it. You've got to trust me. We can't do that. Based on our evaluation, we, we cannot do that. The test of genuine faith is whether or not we're going to take God at His word, whether or not we're going to trust in God now and continue trusting in God. It's a persevering faith. That all who genuinely are saved will trust in God and His word. And we'll continue to do that all the way until the end. So beware the sin of unbelief. It will cause you to stray. It will cause me to stray. And then secondly, keep your eyes fixed on the unchanging God. We'll get into more of, of this as we study through the text, but, but we need to keep our eyes on God. When life seems to be a series of trials, we need to recognize that God is in the heavens and He's accomplishing His purposes through us and our job is to submit to Him. Our job is not to cause all things to happen as we want them. Our job is to trust in God. It's amazing to think, especially the story of of Balaam, that, that while they were complaining and grumbling and sinning against God down in the camp, God was on the hills remaining faithful to His promises. He was up there working on their behalf, making promises on their behalf that I'm going to follow through on this. This is our God. He, he loves us when we are faithful. And he, he continues with us despite our unfaithfulness. And so we need to keep our eyes fixed on Him. Not on the changing circumstances around us. Not on the, 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 the lack of prosperity or success from a human perspective. But, but on what is sure and, and unmovable. And that is our God and His promises. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this overview that we could consider this book that, that has been inscripturated by Your Holy Spirit for our benefit so that we could understand the truth of Your Word and, and know um, what You expect of us and also see both positive and negative examples of what it looks like to have faith in You. And Lord, I, I admit I, and I think behalf, on behalf of all of us, it's too many times we look like the first generation who have been just given an embarrassment of spiritual resources 
and have seen you work in, in spectacular ways in regeneration and sanctification, and yet we are quick to grumble and complain about our circumstances. We are quick to distrust you and, and not believe in your promises and want to know what's going to happen around the corner when <clears throat> we still have several steps to make it there. And Lord, we pray that you just help us to have the childlike faith that, that just trusts you no matter what. And we pray that, that we would have that faith both now and all the way until death so that one day our faith would be made sight. And no longer we, will we have to believe in what we cannot see, but we'll believe uh, having seen. Lord, help us. We need your spirit to strengthen us. We need to be reminded about the truth from your word. We need to, to see where our sin is, has been an offense to you. And we need to, to see the pitfalls ahead and be able to avoid them. And we can only do that as we come to know you more. And so, Lord, make yourself known to us through your word and as we study through this book. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.